Hello, hello, and welcome to Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. You're here with me again, Jack Buckingham. I'm back. Uh, I've not been on for a few episodes, but we've had some lovely other hosts who have been doing an excellent job. Uh, We've had some really interesting episodes lately, and this episode that's coming up is going to be no exception. Yes, so join me and my guest today as we go uh, riding reindeer, hunting through the uh, Siberian tiger forests with the indigenous uh, Taju people. I had a lovely time chatting to my guest this week. I'm really fascinating. I learned absolutely loads. She is a cultural anthropologist who originally hails from the Tiva province in Siberia. So we chat all about what it's like uh, to live there, what it's like to get into academia. We talk about some of the struggles that are facing people who live in this province, particularly the indigenous Tuju people. We also talk about the joys of Tuvan throat singing and so much more besides. I could have chatted to her for days. So yeah, I hope that you uh, I hope that you enjoy this episode. Although so also should be some really interesting links in the bio today. I mean there often is, but today especially. So here you go. Enjoy. Thank you again for listening to Polar Times. Okay, everyone, please welcome to the stage our podcast guest this week, Tayana Alakcha. Hi, Tayana. How's it going? Hi, I'm doing good. How about you? I'm good as well, thank you. Thank you so much for giving up your time to come on to Polar Times. So this is the first section of the podcast. We like to call it the icebreaker because it's where we get to know you, our, uh, our guest, so as, as usual, my first question is, who are you and what do you currently do in the polar world? Currently, I'm a postdoc of the Division of History, or History of Science, Technology and Environment at KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. So I do research about food politics of Antarctic krill in the former Soviet Union. Okay. Um, and so you're currently based in Sweden, but you're from Siberia, is that correct? The Tuva province? And I have to, I have to apologize right now if I uh, mispronounce anything <laughs> in this episode. You'll, you'll have to correct me. But you're from, from Tuva, is that correct? Yes, uh, I'm from the Tuva Republic, but we say Tiva Republic in Tiva. language, yeah. Okay. And I'm Tiva, the name of my ethnicity, but in English Tuva uh, it's kind of, but ethnonym, it's Tiba. Okay, and you are really a cultural anthropologist. So how did you get into that role? Uh, a postdoc in Stockholm. Okay, um, before that, but before that you studied in cultural anthropology in the US. Uh, and before that you taught English in a couple of different universities in Tuva. Is that correct? Uh, only, no, only in Tuva. Only in Tuva, okay. University, yeah. So you have uh, quite an interesting uh, CV, I have to say. Let's start right at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about where where you're from and uh, just what it's like there, I suppose? (laughs) I I actually looked to, I've I've been doing a tiny bit of research. So um, your province is in kind of southern Siberia, so kind of um, the northern border of Mongolia. And I actually, the capital, is the capital called Kizal? Kizal. 
Kizel. Yeah. Yes, it's actually a kind of a similar latitude to to London. So it's not. Really? I think when people, I think when people think of Siberia, they think the far north, uh, <laughs> which obviously a lot of it is. But um, and obviously it's a completely different environment and biome to Western Europe. So, uh, but yeah. So yeah, can you tell us a bit about um, Tiva? Uh, so the Tuva Republic, it's a small province, but it's very beautiful. Uh, what you should know is the most beautiful places in Siberia is southern Siberia, my region and uh, Far East. If you want to travel, when people say, oh, I want to travel to Siberia, and Siberia is huge, it's, uh, it's more than the territory of the U.S., and when I ask people where you would like to come, particularly in what province, and people don't have any idea where they would like, I don't know what they have in their mind. They, first of all, they think about wilderness. And actually, uh, there are, um, yeah, it's true. In many uh, like places in Siberia, it's a real wilderness. Like, for example, in my republic, and my republic is very unique uh, because um, um, about 90% of the total population are indigenous people. This is the only one province in Siberia where indigenous people uh, population is so predominant. There are other republics like Saha, Buryatia, where there also um, indigenous population is predominant. But Tuva is only uh, the only one where it's like 95, almost 95%. Can you imagine you just come to the country, uh, like uh, it's like a small country in another country. You come and everybody is native and uh, people usually speak in a native language. I think uh, about 80% of people speak uh, in Tuvan as a first uh, language. And actually, in the villages where, like, uh, indigenous populations, hundred uh, percent elders and young children don't speak Russian. Um, children begin to learn Russian at schools, and currently, uh, it's uh, we have a problem with the Russian language because uh, uh, when uh, uh, when high school students graduate, uh, they need to take standard test. And this idea was borrowed from the U.S. Actually, actually, and they need to take Russian. And Russian is a difficult language, and it's really difficult for them. And they have to focus on Russian, and they don't want to study indigenous, our native Tuvan language. This is a problem for us. Um, so in order to master Russian language, they have to move to the uh, capital. If, if families have like relatives or friends, they have to send their children to the capital in order to improve their Russian and take this uh, and pass this test successfully. So, okay, that's really interesting. Um, kind of like a was there a period during the twentieth century when your where republic was an independent state? Is that correct? Like but I'm recognized by the Soviet Union and Mongolia. Yeah, it was uh, like 426. I don't remember. Tuva enjoyed it, its independence for a, for a while. It was a small country. And actually, there is one funny fact. 
I said, uh, this during the Second World War to um, announce war to the uh, Germany. So the government sent a telegram to Hitler. <laughs> And actually, if we consider these historical facts, <laughs> two were still probably in the war with Germany. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, and two were was joined to the USSR in 1944, but uh, before this, it experienced two colonizations. The first was Chinese, about 100 years. The second uh, was Russian, uh, with a Tsarist regime. Mm-hmm. before the um, Bolshevik came to their power. So Yeah, yeah. And is you still is that still kind of like a feeling of self governance and kind of being separate from wider Russia? Is that quite distinct? No, it's just like um it's just province and it's a semi autonomous what it's called. Uh so there is a local government like um, like in every, you know, province. Yeah. So So I was hoping you could tell us a bit about your culture from your republic. And that's actually kind of, you did your PhD on on one region of that, on the Toju reindeer hunter herders. Is that, uh, can you tell us all about that? Yeah, I did research on human-animal relations on the Toju reindeer herder hunters who live in the northern part of Tuva. And they have, uh, they are actually understudied uh, group of people, and the Taju, uh, that's how uh, they call themselves uh, in Russian, they actually officially recognize indigenous people of Siberia. Uh, and the rest of the population, Tiva, which I belong, we are not officially recognized as indigenous people because the Soviet government has, a, it's a, has a, such a weird old law uh, which was originated in early Soviet era uh, and the magic number if the number of indigenous people more than 50,000 they are not recognized as indigenous they recognize as minority okay interesting so yeah but uh, however in um, in the mass media ethnographic literature even uh, internationally of course we are recognized as an indigenous people because we know who we are who our ancestors and who live in our land and if you look at my face you see that I'm 100% indigenous i don't need to prove that i'm not indigenous uh, so this is a law and usually um, it doesn't um, matter what country has regime socialist uh, or capitalist uh, it does uh, exactly the same thing to indigenous people so the government federal government decides who is indigenous and who is not indigenous but uh, russia has a really weird law if you're more than 50,000, you're not indigenous. So I studied these indigenous people, but uh, they have different ancestors, and uh, in the past they spoke in a different language by, by the end of 19th century, they adopted Tuvan language. And nowadays they consider themselves as a uh, Tuvan group 
like Toju, like Teva living in the Toju district. And I did multi-species ethnography because they have reindeer, dogs, and uh, horses. As I mentioned, the understudied group of people and nobody did research about human-animal relations. And it's really a fascinating topic uh, um, if you look at uh, uh, these people, not necessarily Daju, but there are other reindeer herder hunters, uh, other gr indigenous groups who live in southern Siberia uh, about uh, the relationship between animals, reindeer, and actually it's considered that uh, the, uh, reindeer domestication in Siberia occurred in this region, uh, in southern Siberia, in my region. And this is all this type of reindeer herding. It's uh, called taiga. And usually public has idea about tundra reindeer herding, you know, like when they have thousands, like hundreds of thousands of reindeer in tundra, what you would see like in uh, Finland, Norway, or in the northern part of uh, Siberia. But taiga forest is very different. And it's a different type of economy, they describe like uh, hunters on the reindeer because they are hunters, they do uh, hunt. And this is the most economic, uh, important economic activity. Okay, and people might have heard of the word um, tiger to describe the whole kind of biome of, you know, these northern boreal forests, but that word actually comes from your indigenous language, correct? Yes, I wouldn't say that it comes particular from my language, but it comes from my region. But uh, yeah, but in this region, there live different indigenous uh, groups who spoke and still speak in Turkic languages. So it comes from, but it's considered that it comes from definitely Altai, Tuva region, um, because we have so many geographic uh, names like Mengun Taiga, Pai Taiga, Kazal Taiga, and so, so many Taiga, Taiga, Taiga. <laughs> okay, so can you tell us a little bit about some of these, um, you know, human-animal relationships that uh, the Toju have? I mean, obviously, reindeer is uh, the big one, but they also have very close relationships with, like, dogs, uh, with the hunting dogs, etc. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, this, until recently, uh, uh, scholars who studied um, reindeer herder hunters, uh, they overlooked uh, hunting dogs, even they stressed their importance, uh, and they were they f focused on reindeer. But um, for the last uh, several years, situation the situation is changing, and uh, many scholars do multi-species ethnography. Uh, they consider all these domestic animals because they play an important role. Um, but um, for example, with Taju, hunting dogs are, are very important. And and uh, they are uh, they keep usually indigenous breed like what they call Tojun like or Tuvan like, which is officially recognized as a East Siberian like. And um, so they hunt with these dogs. And uh, uh, in my dissertation, I argued uh, that. Uh, 
the reindeer domestication was possible because uh, 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 the ancestors of Tojo hunted with dogs because uh, humans, they need to keep up uh, with the speed of the dogs. And this landscape is very challenging, especially in winter when deep snow arrives and it's um, mountains, it's a hilly um, landscape and uh, rocky mountains. And with the deep snow, you cannot even walk. It's impossible. I think uh, humankind in general made uh, like a huge progress by domesticating, uh, um, first of all, dogs and in this particular region, uh, reindeer. If we look uh, uh, like uh, where people hunt with uh, hunting dogs, like in the forest all over the world, only uh, southern Siberia is a place where people ride animal. And today only two uh, regions left, uh, uh, like uh, southern uh, America where people hunt with dogs in the jungles and uh, southern Siberia. I mean, indigenous people who live traditional way of life. I'm not talking about like uh, sport hunting when people come, you know, with the dogs and leave. No, people who live in the forest and who lead traditional way of life. So only two regions. I don't know how they do in jungles, how they run after dogs. I even cannot imagine because the environment also is kind of challenging. It's a deep forest and, uh, you know, tree, uh, if you lift, I have never been in jungles, but I live in the taiga and it's difficult because uh, tree uh, roots come out and they're huge and sometimes fallen trees are on your way. It's uh, very difficult to go through, and it's also swampy, especially in summer when it's rainy. It gets really um, muddy and so difficult to move. Mm-hmm. And so they're using hunting dogs, and they're but they're riding through these forests. Are they riding on reindeer themselves? Yes. Yeah. Can. Okay. Sorry, I'm just trying to get it um, straight in my head. So the reindeer have been domesticated but do they hunt the reindeer as well or is that um yeah, they hunt uh, wild uh, reindeer but their number is not so big okay okay um yeah and so they so they're so they're riding reindeer essentially through this very thick forest in deep snow in the middle of winter it's quite incredible <laughs> mountains and hills <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so what? Um, so, as well as wild reindeer, what else are they hunting? Um, they hunt. For com- they do commercial hunting in the fall. Uh, so, in the fall, they hunt sable. In the U.S., it's called martin, and musk deer, the smallest deer in Eurasia. Um, it's like the size of the dog. It's very small and has two fans. And you can Google it and see. And um, so uh, they hunt for their glands because mask deer glands are used in uh, Asian folk medicine and in uh, perfume industry and it's considered the most expensive animal product. But you can extract only a few grams from the glands. Wow. Okay. Interesting. And is that this this kind of hunting economy, is that the whole economy or is there some kind of, you know, 
reindeer meat industry, I guess? No, it's, Not at all. Uh, it's just hunting and they hunt for subsistence. They hunt uh, all kinds of animals. They encounter, uh, and of course, it's uh, red deer, uh, moose, uh, or just deer, mm-hmm. but regular deer, not reindeer, but uh, just deer. Uh, yeah. What else? Uh, like smaller animals, but uh, but their first target, of course, it's uh, red deer and moose because they need to keep, uh, they feed uh, family and dogs. And they keep uh, dogs, like hunting dogs, from three to five dogs. And so during the course of your PhD, were you able to go there and speak to people and, um, you know, experience some of these experiences? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, I did my field work there. Uh, I lived with, uh, I stayed with two families. Uh, I spent my um, three summers there. Uh, no, two summers and one time I went uh, during uh, like uh, fall, November, December uh, to experience this uh, commercial hunting and to see because every season is different. Mm-hmm. And this is the most important season uh, in terms of economy and the most exciting because they go on hunt. And times passes so quickly. Uh, they don't use traps because they consider this is inhuman uh, kind of killing. Um, and they also think it's boring. It's not exciting. And I went on the one trip and I completely understand this because you, if like you have like 100 uh, traps and you went to catch sable, and you know, you kill indiscriminately so many animals because the different kinds of animals are caught in this trap, like hares, rabbits, uh, foxes, and and for example, fox. If the cost, if a fox will be caught in the trap, uh, it will ignore the poor. Oh, of course, right, interesting. Of course, and it will go, and uh, you know, this animal is handicapped. It will not survive, and will die uh, slowly and suffering a lot. This is very unhuman, that's what they consider. If you need to kill Sable, why you, the question, why you kill so many animals and you are not going to use them? You are not able even to eat uh, like so many. So, uh, and with dogs, you cannot kill so many animals. For example, it can take a whole day to chase a Sable because if it's cold, it's a more if it's more colder, the faster sable runs <laughs> and it uh, climbs to the like, climbs trees, yeah, <laughs> and hides and hides so well. It's so difficult to detect, and if there is if there is a hole in the tree, and of course a uh, sable hides in this uh, whole tree, and the tree, of course, it's tall, and they have to wait maybe an hour or two. And the dog uh, just watching, waiting. And with mask, even it's more challenging. It can take uh, up to three days of chasing the mask deer. For example, hunter chases uh, um, a mask deer for the whole day. And uh, by the end of the day, he returns to home and comes early. uh, And on the next day, uh, he comes back early in the morning 
he follows the tracks and again continues his chase. And, and musk deer, they find refuge on the rocks, on the hilly rocks. And they also hide well. And you know, they jump so well. And of course, hum- humans and dogs can reach it. And again, sometimes uh, it's a failure. So, but they occasionally use snares for um, to catch deer. In this case, if they cannot catch, so they try to put a snare uh, where they think uh, the deer will go. So, and they know that uh, with dogs, uh, how they explain to me, you cannot kill so many animals. You, we know that other animals are left. For example, I hunt in this hill. And when I will be back next fall, I know that they will be um, healed. It's kind of renewable resources for them. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think that's true of the world over. You know, this subsistence hunting obviously has to be sustainable because that's how people have lived for, you know, generations. Yeah, and uh, and they think it's so boring. Uh, also, if you just put traps and come and check them, maybe in two or three days. Yeah, it's too easy. <laughs> it's very boring. It's not so exciting. I went only for one uh, trip for the day, and you know, the time went so quickly. Mm-hmm. We were lucky. Uh, the hunter who took me, uh, he killed one sable. And we spent like... About four hours, but for me, it was like we spent one hour and a half. Yeah, <laughs> time flew. It was so interesting and exciting. You know, you ride reindeer, okay, you chase, yeah, you follow the dog, and then you, the dog detects. And it was fun. And I completely understand after this trip that it's just excitement, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, absolutely. So you're riding the reindeer. <laughs> yeah, and we are humans. We are predators it's in our nature you know because we eat other animals and if you consider like uh, in uh, in the past you know when people (laughs) hunt with the spears and chase the wild big animals so we still have it yeah if you will be in such circumstances so you probably instinct (laughs) will wake up (laughs) yeah Yeah, I can't imagine if I ever might be in such circumstances, but it does kind of sound like fun. Yeah, I, you know, I'm vegetarian. Yeah. You will be not excited. But I can appreciate the whole thrill of the chase and, you know, riding reindeer through the tiger and how fun that would be. <laughs> but you will not be able to follow the animal. You will feel sorrow for this animal and yeah. you will be not hungry. <laughs> for example, for me, you know, like I remember one class and the professor, he uh, conducted research in Siberia. It was ritual and among reindeer herders. And it was like, um, like um, blood sausage it was a little blood. And he thought, oh, it's bloody. And somebody of the students may come, yeah, it's bloody. But you know, for us, for indigenous people, like, and I came to him after the class and I said, you know, it's bloody, but for me, it's a signal. Food is coming. Because mm-hmm. we are used to see how animals are slaughtered because we have nomadic people and uh, all meat come, most of meat come from nomadic people or from the villages where animals are free range. So I know what is a good uh, taste of real meat. 
So, and when animals are slaughtered, so we're used to see this from the, our childhood. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's bloody, but it's a signal that food is coming. So for me, it's like excitement. Yeah, I will eat soon, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I may just, just out of interest, may I ask, is it, what, would, what would be the role of um, women in these kind of indigenous communities? Are they also hunting the same as men or is it a totally different role? Some women, they uh, uh, still hunt. Uh, it depends. If they're interested, uh, they also do hunt. Uh, they hunt. Uh, in the past, they also hunted. Actually, in the past, there were more women who hunted. And uh, because uh, men, they went, uh, especially in the fall, when they went for this uh, commercial hunting and they followed sables as, and uh, squirrels, but mostly sables, uh, they went far away uh, and they could leave like the camp for one month and two. So, and of course, women have to provide uh, the children uh, with small animals. Mm-hmm. They hunted, and it's easier to get uh, small animals. And also, the second reason they hunted is because of the fur market. That's, right. Uh, yeah, because fur was uh, uh, the best commodity to trade. That's how one of the main reasons why Siberia was haunted because uh, of the fur. So they hunted, it's easier to kill, uh, for example, 60 squirrels and one uh, sable. So they did this for money. Um, can I ask you, what are kind of the greatest challenges that the Toju indigenous people, but also your Tuvan minority people are facing kind of in a modern globalized world? That's a big question. I'm sorry, I just sprung that on you. <laughs> well, uh, as I said, the tour was showing in 1944. And can you imagine... Like at least 70 years ago, everybody were nomadic. Like all my grandparents were nomadic. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, like from my mother's side, they came to live to the capital. And people, the society went through dramatic and huge changes. Uh, and of course, there are so many problems with, uh, uh, you know, uh, people were uh, like, uh, like, uh, for example, me, I went through assimilation, Sovietization, and uh, we all went through this. And nowadays we have globalization. I think uh, what uh, we have now, uh, uh, currently the situation with the language is comparatively good compared to other indigenous communities, as I said, because 95% of the people are indigenous. But here we have another problem, as I said, that people don't speak good, some who come from rural areas, they don't speak good Russian. And they're not good in Tuvan either, even if they speak as a native language. But Tuvan language is difficult in terms of writing. So they're not, uh, how would say, like, uh, if they have a job and what people complain that they're nice and good with, like, if they need to write something, papers, documents, you know, reports, they're neither good in Tuvan, neither good in Russian. 
this is what people complain if we talk about like uh, contemporary uh, societal problems. But there are uh, many economical problems. Uh, two ways, the poorest province in Russia, there is no industry and it, um, the money comes to the Republic's uh, budget from the federal government. And uh, of course, salaries are miserable and there are so many um, economic, uh, social problems. And one of the social problems is uh, alcohol abuse, unfortunately. And I think it's everywhere in Siberia. And uh, also um, just many, I think it's many social problems like everywhere in uh, any indigenous community all over the world, they are similar and uh, the same. Is it just an issue of kind of urbanization, I suppose, like people leaving behind indigenous nomadic communities to move to cities? Is that part of the issue? Uh, yes, part of it, but it's uh, mostly uh, so, uh, economic uh, issues because uh, after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, like in the villages, people were uh, part of the collective farms. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, these uh, collective farms uh, disappeared and people unemployed, it's severe unemployment in Tula. And where I conducted uh, my field work in a small village, uh, the population was 800 people and 90% of the population is unemployed 90% and what they do and so depressing uh, it's uh, and of course uh, 90% unemployed and young population uh, I saw some young people they're not interested uh, not all of them but some they're not interested to get job to get education but in general, uh, in Tuba, um, young populations are so focused to get uh, high education because without high education in Russia, you cannot get a job. At least you need to have uh, um, uh, to graduate community college. And in Tuba, because there is no industry, it's only state jobs, uh, you need to have how, uh, high education. So people are so... Uh, determined to have high education and we have uh, in general in Siberia people uh, uh, indigenous people are highly educated and uh, there is a stereotype uh, what I see like uh, researchers who come from the like from the US or Canada they have stereotypes of their own people and when they come to Siberia uh, unfortunately, what I see, uh, the process of dehumanization when they see indigenous people as less civilized and, uh, and they presume that we are not educated, you know, uh, but, you know, in Siberia it's very different, especially in the republics. It's a huge number of indigenous people have high education. And some of them speak foreign languages. It's not necessarily English. They can speak German, French, Mongolian, or Turkey, or Chinese. For example, my daughter, she studies in China. She speaks fluently English and Chinese, and she's planning to study Korean. Wow. Yeah, okay. Can I ask, uh, briefly about because then you went and 
you were a Fulbright scholar and you went to the University of Arizona. So kind of what was that experience like moving from Siberia to the U.S.? Oh, it was a life-changing experience. I think this is one of the best periods in my life <laughs> uh, because I came from Siberia and I came to a totally different environment, you know, to Arizona, where extremely hot. Mm -hmm. uh, the first month, I thought I would die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, I took classes in American Indian studies in anthropology, it uh, was so different. It was, you know, because uh, I, if we compare like uh, indigenous people in Arctic and Subarctic communities, unfortunately, uh, uh, indigenous people in Siberia, we are more of oppressed compared like indigenous people like in the US, Canada. So, and how, and what they talk in the classes, I even couldn't imagine if we, you know, if we will be able to discuss such topics in Russia. Mm -hmm. I think if I would talk about it, I would go to jail, definitely. It's, it's just to be like, uh, uh, like in Russia to be, uh, uh, you know, if you're like an indigenous activist, it's very dangerous usually. If you're like for fighting for indigenous rights, you ended up in jail or uh, this is the worst scenario or less worse scenario that uh, you will be unemployed. Mm -hmm. so if I will do the intuva to a small, and of course nobody wants to deal with me. I mean, because it's a state jobs, nobody will give me a job and I will be unemployed and probably begin to dream, depressed and die. That's usually how it happens, unfortunately. This is life. I saw this. So, and for me, it was so... I was so impressed how they were free and they talk about the topics about assimilation, discrimination, and uh, all this uh, uh, colonization. Uh, it was eye-opening experience for me. And I really appreciate and actually I'm grateful to the U.S. government and Fulbright program particularly that I was able to go. So my life changed. At that time, I was a PhD student in Russia in linguistics, uh, social linguistics, and I decided to change my field of study and decided that I would like to be a cultural anthropologist and I would like to study my people, I mean nomadic people. I always wanted to study nomadic people. And I did for my master's degree, I studied uh, cattle and horse breeders in Tuva, property relations also kind of sensitive topic in Russia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, fascinating. I feel like we could carry on chatting for, for, <laughs> for hours about all of this stuff. I do also just wanted to quickly ask you about your um, postdoc research that you're doing now before we, before we run out of time, because this is kind of a shift away from everything that we've been talking about. Uh, about food politics of Antarctic krill in the former Soviet Union. Oh, I really love my topic. Uh, in the beginning, I thought, oh my gosh, what I'm going to do? I don't know anything about the krill. And I, when I uh, started this project, I've read uh, like about biology krill and, uh, you know, about krill fishing industry. Um, 
and I went to Moscow for archival work and this topic uh, nobody wrote about this topic before uh, th there is a lot of literature on biology krill or about krill fishing but uh, nothing about food politics of Antarctic krill because the USSR did a huge experiment on the population uh, their final goal was uh, to um, uh, you know, they wanted the whole population to eat a krill on a daily basis because during the Soviet era, it was lack of um, food products, particularly meat, and they wanted to provide high uh, quality protein, uh, Antarctic krill, so and develop uh, different uh, products from krill, for example, krill spread which uh, which is uh, was delicious and even uh, like um, uh, cheese with krill and people oh. said also it was delicious and actually you still you can still buy this in russia but uh, um, but uh, cheese with shrimps but it was uh, how they advertise it is like uh, based on the original recipe with um, cheese with uh, krill. So I never tried the cheese, but I tried uh, krill spread. Not krill spread, I mean krill meat. Uh, so uh, this topic is interesting. And I think my background helps. Uh, I'm from Siberia. What I noticed uh, from literature, mm, uh, if it like in terms of food, whatever it like Russian Soviet food, uh, these scholars uh, usually locate uh, metropolitan scholars like it in Moscow or St. Petersburg, or they're coming from big cities of European part. And when they write about Russian food or Soviet food, they mention maybe two big cities in Siberia. But this is not the whole population of Siberia, you know. And what about like uh, small remote provinces, like for example, Tuva Republic? Of course, they don't have any idea. So I think uh, my ground, my background helps me to see a um, broader picture of my country, not only European part, what people usually focus. It's it's not only about food, but usually what I see. What they write is about European part, and also uh, the Soviets. They did experiments. Uh, they actually started to do experiments with animals, and they uh, wanted to increase productivity. For example, with cows, chickens, and farmed mink. And when it comes to fur, of course, I will pay attention because my family uh, made uh, fur hats. I grew up with fur. I love fur. <laughs> and my mother was a professional fur evaluator by training, and she worked as a fur evaluator uh, for three years. So, so she taught me everything about fur, like different hues, colors, the difference of farmed and wild animals. So I have this basic knowledge. And of course, if it comes like, oh, farmed mink, oh, of course, for me, it will be interesting. And uh, I begin to dig this uh, topic and it turned out that it wasn't successful because they gave uh, like the whole frozen uh, meat of Antarctic krill to, uh, um, to mink. 
in the farms, in these fair factory farms. And of course, it wasn't successful because the diet, nowadays we know that diet should be balanced. But at the time, like in 70s, they thought that if they will give only krill, the animals will thrive and their fur will be shiny, silky, and, um, you know, better. But it turned out they became uh, to lose their hair and they became bold. So this experiment didn't work well. So that's crazy to think that, um, you know, krill being fished in Antarctica was being used to feed mink in fur industries in you know <laughs> but the fur industry it's not surprising and i can mention what was a big disappointment for the ussr actually these reports when i mean the results of these experiments were not published because the ussr was one of the top first supplier in the world markets so yeah. I can imagine that it was a big disappointment for the Soviet officials. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I bet it was, yeah. And you're kind of looking at how, you know, these resources changed over the period. Is it like from the 60s to the 90s? So, you know, what were the biggest changes that you've come across? Um, you know, how um, Soviet policies um, changed in that time. Oh, you know, in Antarctica, uh, when uh, 200 uh, miles were introduced, you know, I forgot how to say each country has 200 miles for fishing. Oh, is it the um, exclusive economic zone? Yeah, exclusive zone, yeah, special exclusive zone. So, and because of this introduction, uh, actually, uh, the Soviet economy suffered because uh, before they fish like uh, in Antarctica, you know, like uh, like the USSR and Japan were two leading countries who did a lot of fishing in Antarctica. But with the introduction 200 mile zone, exclusive zone, uh, the economy of course suffered because they, they built like uh, huge ships in the size of football uh, field. You know, they built uh, processing uh, factories, they built uh, like uh, fish stores, the whole chain around the country. And actually, uh, it's ended with the corruption. Uh, uh, the introduction of this exclusive zone, actually, it was, the country actually was already corrupted. The Soviet socialists, even they denied this, but with the introduction of this, it ended up with a huge corruption and the case was the biggest corruption case which shook the whole country <laughs> so unfortunately this put experiment fail mm-hmm. yeah there you go the power of uh, you know antarctic krill <laughs> to <laughs> change the fate of a nation or something <laughs> yeah but still uh, russia produces uh, some krill products and they still talk about it uh, to return uh, its position they still want uh, to continue uh, to fish Antarctic krill because it's a high quality protein and it's good for human consumption. They still talk about it and uh, would like uh, to have former strong positions in the Antarctica. You know, it's related to politics. Sure, like everything. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, excellent. Should we move on to the last section? There was a, is there anything that you'd like to promote on this podcast that you'd like to share with the general public? I think I don't have anything, but I'm looking for a job now because my contract will be over in the end of September. If people <laughs> who are interested, I mean, if they know about opening position, I would be happy if they will let me know or somebody would like to hire me and say, oh, she's great. I don't <laughs> think so, but who knows? <laughs> like we need her. Of course, it's a dream, but who knows? Okay, no, Fab, you never know who listens to Polar Times. I'm sure you get all sorts. Yeah. So, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Um, I've just noticed on my list of questions here to ask you, there's one other thing I was going to ask you about. When you type into Google uh, or you start typing um, Tiva into Google, what comes up is often Tiva and throat singing. And oh. I, I obviously went on YouTube and looked at that, and that's incredible. Can you tell us a little bit about that? About Tiva and throat singing? Oh, my gosh, it's just such a huge topic. I think you should invite me. <laughs> oh, for that whole time. Okay. <laughs> I mean, uh, people who would like to hear, of course, I gave lectures, lectures about two and throating because it's our part of our identity, two and throating. We love, it's flourishing, it's evolving, it's very popular. And two and uh, bands, they began to perform in abroad, like in the Western countries, like 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. And there are so different styles. I don't know what you listen because uh, what, what when I was in the U.S. and people who love uh, throating, they told me the names like classic bands, and I thought, no, we have now young generation, which is fun and it's like um, fusion of different styles. That's what I like. So it's very flourishing and it's very popular. That's what I can say. And it's, you can, if you're in tuba, for example, it's everywhere. You can hear tuba songs uh, with the throat singing, uh, even uh, like men, they have like as a ringtone throat singing. Okay. <laughs> I had it too while I live in Alaska, but you know, people gave me weird looks when I was <laughs> It's like, oh, I need to change it because, you know, it sounds weird. I'm in the U.S. It's not kind of good. Probably not something they used to listen to, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, of course I love it. and oh, It's beautiful like, to listen to, yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, and there are different styles and sub-styles. Uh, so, yeah, if you like throating. Actually, that's what I would like to promote in a polar match week to have uh, to add links of our throatings, but I need to receive their permission. Actually, that's what I need to do to write an email uh, to the Ministry of Culture to contact to contact them and ask their permission. Okay, excellent. So hopefully, um, March Polar Week is the fifth beginning on the 15th of March um, and if this episode comes out before then and you've had permission to share these recordings then we'll link them together so people can easily find um, you know yeah. these throat singing bands and have a listen for themselves yeah and you said that I kind of can promote myself yes I like to promote myself so if you want to hear uh, about my research about Tuju people, human-animal relations, uh, you can invite me uh, to give a lecture. I would be happy to do this. 
also I give a lecture on Atuvan shamanism. That's what usually people also would like to hear because shamanism is actively practiced in Tuvan. Okay. And uh, and the third popular topic, I mean the second, the first is uh, Tuvan shamanism, second is uh, Tuvan throat singing. Of course, I'm from Tuva and we love throat singing. Of course, it's better to hear from cultural anthropologists about uh, Tuvan throat singing. So that brings us to the end of another episode of Polar Times. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Uh, please don't forget to you know, uh, like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast on all of your little podcast shops. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us. Uh, these are polartimes at gmail.com. Once again, my email is these are polartimes at gmail.com. Or you could also tweet Apex, which is at polar underscore research with, you know, guest recommendations, feedback, anything at all. We'd love to hear from you. So all that remains is for me to thank my guest, Tainana. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.